Good morning, everyone. It's good to have you with us. Probably have some visitors here this morning again with us, uh, here for some baptisms, and we're so glad that you've joined us. Uh, like Tim said, we've had baptisms now two weekends in a row, 24 last week, 12 this week. And I just feel lucky to be a part of this church where God's just doing so much and lives are changing, hey? Uh, it's an awesome, awesome thing. All right, last week, if you weren't here last week, I started a new series on character. It's going to take us six or seven weeks uh, to complete. And last week, we talked about why character is important. And I only got through three reasons. There's actually many more. But we talked about three reasons why character is absolutely essential, godly character. Uh, first of all, it's essential for assurance of salvation. And if you want to be sure that you're saved, the Bible clearly and consistently teaches that you can look at your behavior to see if you are saved, all right? Fruitfulness. We talked about godly character is essential if you want to be fruitful in this lifetime. And lastly, we looked at the fact that godly character is essential to prepare you for life after death, to prepare you to succeed in Jesus' kingdom when he comes back, all right? And in much of the rest of this series, what I want to do is I want to go through different individual character traits. And we want to look at some really vital, important, necessary character traits, things like integrity and steadfastness and humility and submission to authority and loving your enemies and some of those really, really important. And I was thinking about starting in on one of those this weekend, um, but I feel like i got to preach one more message before we get into the individual character traits. And, uh, and that's what, I want, what I've been preaching this weekend and what I want to preach now in this service is I want to talk about how do you change your character? Um, because I want to, I, I just think it would be foolish for us to talk about the individual character traits if we don't understand the process by which your character is changed. Otherwise, we're just going to go and listen, we're going to listen to these other character traits the rest of the series, and it won't really impact us. We'll, we'll like it, we'll go, oh, that was neat, and those are some good character traits. But we actually, there's a process you have to go through in order to change your character. And so what I'm preaching here this morning is undergirding now the rest of this series. The rest of this series is built on this one. This is the one that enables you to put those ones into practice, all right? So how do you change your character? Bow your heads with me, close your eyes, let's pray, and we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus. Uh, first of all, Lord, uh, we just remember the Empower Retreat that's on. Pastor Ray and Donovan and Stefan and Zach are out there, Lord Jesus, 85 participants. They're in their last session right now. Father, we pray that you would fill them powerfully with your Holy Spirit. Pray that you would transform their lives forever as they encounter your Holy Spirit in power and truth and love. And Lord Jesus, for us here, Lord, at service number four, Jesus, I just pray that you would impart into us your burning heart for righteousness. Lord, righteousness, godliness, character, it matters. And I just pray for myself and for this church, Lord, that a deep yearning and desire for holiness will grip this church, that we will be known at Southland for holy behavior, for integrity, for purity, for godliness, for trustworthiness, Father, for loving our enemies, Father, that behavior and holiness and righteousness will mark our days and our lives. I pray your protection over this service, God, May we receive your truth, Lord. Open up our hearts. Make our hearts soft and receptive to receive everything that you have for us here this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, there's one thing I basically want to hammer away at in this message, and that is this. If you want to have godly character in your life, it's going to require a lot of hard work. Hard work. I just want to repeat that over and over and over again for the time that we have here together. That godly character requires effort. 
Godly character, let me repeat myself a little bit from last week. Godly character will not happen to you by accident. You will never, it has never happened to any human being yet. It will not happen in the future. You will never wake up one morning and just go, oh, I've got godly character. It doesn't work that way. And the second thing is, God will not do character to you without your participation, your effort, your energy, your blood, sweat, and tears. He will not just put it in you and, oh, thank you, God. You're going to have to work at it. Uh, let's just look at two brief snippets of passages. We looked at these in detail last week. I just want to look at one line from each. 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul said this, Rather, train yourself for godliness. Notice it is not God's responsibility to snap his fingers and put godly character onto you. It is your responsibility, it is my responsibility to train ourselves for godliness and godly character. 2 Peter 1 verse 5, Peter said this, for this very reason, make every effort, every effort to supplement your faith, your belief in Jesus with virtue. And we talked about how virtue is godly character last weekend. Again, effort. It's going to require toil, striving, straining, hard work, pushing at it, sweating, all that sort of stuff. It's going to require much effort if you and I are going to supplement our belief in Jesus with godly character, with virtue. Now, the reason I want to spend a whole message talking about this is because this, this point is hyper-important in this discussion on character, in this message series on character. Because if you don't get this point, one of two things is going to happen to you. Either you won't finish the process of building godly character in your life, you'll start and you won't finish, or you won't get started in the first place. See, because a lot of people, this is what they think about character. Hey, come to a series. I'm glad we're talking about character. You listen to a message and say it's about integrity or steadfastness or something. As you're listening to it, the Holy Spirit's moving in your heart and he's opening your eyes to see how beautiful these traits are. They really are beautiful. They're wonderful. So you listen to a message, the Holy Spirit's working in your heart. It looks great. You think to yourself, I want that. That's conviction. You feel convicted. Then you leave from the message and you don't realize that hearing a message and feeling conviction about character doesn't give you character any more than watching a movie about Spain helps you speak Spanish, okay? Just feeling conviction, just knowing about character doesn't put character into you. That's why Paul says, train yourself. It's like training your body. You have to do, go through exercises and practice. You have to push towards a goal. It takes time. Really, really important. Learning new character, putting on godly character, and I'm going to give you a few analogies like this today because I want to change the whole paradigm. We have over-spiritualized this thing of character. We have massively over-spiritualized it. We just think that somehow God will do it in us if we attend church enough and if we pray a few times, the Holy Spirit will somehow fill us and we'll get godly character. That's not how it works. Putting on godly character is like learning a new language. When you learn a new language, it feels awkward and unnatural at first, okay? You have to learn a whole new set of vocabulary, a whole new set of words. And then when you're talking, it's, it feels awkward because you're still thinking in the old language. You have to consciously think about what you're doing. You have to concentrate to speak this new language, and it takes time, and you feel uncomfortable doing it. Same with when you're putting on godly character, at first, it's unnatural and awkward because you have to learn a whole new vocabulary for behaving, a whole new set of actions, a whole new uh, set of thoughts and words and things to do in certain situations. You have to learn them. And at first, it feels weird because you're used to behaving in one way. You have to consciously think about what you're doing in order to behave in another way. 
Now here's the thing. What I'm talking about so far, just in a few minutes already, I have offended a vast portion of the Christian culture in the West. Many people hear what I'm talking about right now. Not many people here probably, but many people in our culture, popular Christian culture, are offended at this kind of a message that it takes effort to build godly character. They haven't actually read their Bible since it's all over the Bible. But they're offended at this message that it takes work. Because what I'm talking about sounds like behavior modification. And to them, many Christians in today's culture, behavior modification is like a swear word. And I actually get where that's coming from. It's a backlash against something that really is bad. I think people are, are reacting against, uh, you know, uh, what happened in a lot of churches for many years and generations in our country where you had churches where they took out the voice of God. You can't hear God's voice anymore. There's no intimacy with God. There's no passion for Jesus. You take out all the Holy Spirit. You take out his gifts. You take out the life. And all you're left with is a dry, dusty set of rules. I get that. That is, that kind of behavior modification, just rules with no life, is an abomination to God and it's horrible. Yes. Our problem that is in today's culture, we've thrown out the baby with the bathwater. We've gone, we don't like lifeless, dusty rules and behavior and character. We're just going to go all spirit and life and passion and love. And that is just wrong. Let me confront, I want to just, before we get into the practical stuff of this message, I want to confront two wrong assumptions that are commonly held in our culture. These two assumptions affect all of us to some degree. If, if you were raised and you grew up here, these assumptions affect you in some way, okay? First assumption, assumption number one is loving Jesus is way more important than my behavior. It sounds very good. I'm going to confront it though in just a moment. Assumption number two that I want to talk about here, also wrong, is if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you won't have to try in order to be good. Both of these are very pre prevalent, even if you've never said them or, or written them or read them, consciously thought about them. These are prevalent ways of thinking. So let's look at assumption number one. Again, it sounds very good. Loving Jesus is way more important than behavior. There's an element of truth there. Yes. The first and greatest commandment is this. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, mind, and, and might, and a bunch of things there. I probably won't want to. <laughs> it's the 11 o'clock. I'm going to flub a little bit here. But anyway, yes, loving Jesus, most important commandment. But it's not true that loving Jesus is way more important than your behavior. And I'll tell you why. Because one of the most important ways that you love Jesus is with your behavior. That's why it's not true to say that loving Jesus is way more important than your behavior. We've become a very licentious, sinful Christian culture because we've got this idea that it's just loving Jesus' behavior doesn't really matter. Wrong. John chapter 14. Jesus defines what it means to love him. If... You love me, this is what you will do. You will keep my commandments. Not if you love me, you will have passionate feelings for me in a worship service. If you love me, you will behave properly. You will obey my commands. You will work on godly character. You will keep my commandments. And just in case we missed it, a couple of verses later, he says in verse 21, he says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Again, Jesus says, you want to love me? Keep my commands. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. A few verses later, he says it again, this time in the negative. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. Let me show you 1 John 5, 3, definition of what it means to love God. You want to love God? Let me show you a definition of loving God. This is love for God. Here it is. 
This is, this is it right here. This is love for God to obey his commands. And his commands are not burdensome. We've got this idea that loving Jesus is more important than behavior. Wrong. You can't separate the two. Loving Jesus equals obedience. Living righteously. Jesus says, this is what it means. If you can have such wild passions of emotion for Jesus, if your character is bad, your love for him is weak. This is love for God to obey his commands, and they are not burdensome. Assumption number two, if you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you won't have to try in order to be good. There's this assumption that when you are filled with the Holy Spirit, good things just spontaneously come out of you. You don't have to work at it. Never mind that Paul said, train yourself for godliness. Peter said, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. We've got this idea that when I'm filled by the Holy Spirit, then just good things come out effortlessly. It's like I just watch them. It's like out-of-body experience, good things are coming out of me. And again, I know where this is coming from. There's an element of truth there. It's coming out of this, again, it's a backlash against self-effort. Obviously, we know self-effort apart from Jesus gets us nowhere. I preached a whole message series two summers ago on abiding in Christ. Let me read you a verse here. I want to show you, you know, that I don't believe in doing things by self-effort. Look at this. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Okay? How many things can we do apart from Jesus? Nothing. Zero. You can't do a single good thing in your life apart from Jesus' power and life and ministry in you, working through you. You can't build good character apart from Jesus. No way, no how. Okay? I totally agree with that. Absolutely. Like I said, I preach a message series on that. Here's the problem. Elements of our popular culture have taken the truth that I need Jesus for everything, and they've turned that into, I do nothing. Jesus did not say that you do nothing. He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But it doesn't mean that you sit and watch Jesus do everything. All right? We already looked at Paul said, train yourself for godliness. Make every effort. Let me show you a few other passages. 1 Timothy 6, 11 to 12. Look what Paul says to Timothy here. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. First of all, if you want to be a man of God, you've got to flee temptation. There's some people now that are sitting there, they just think, well, as long as I'm abiding in Christ, he'll take away the temptation. No, you have a responsibility to flee temptation. You still have to do something. It's not automatic. And now this next sentence is all about character. Pursue Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Pursue character. The word there, uh, the Greek word there translated pursue is the Greek word dioko. It means to push hard towards a goal. To break a sweat, to bleed and cry, to really go for it, to strain yourself with everything that is in you. You need to strain yourself towards righteousness and godliness and faithfulness and gentleness. The Bible never, nowhere says anywhere that good behavior and character will just spring out of you without you doing anything. Yes, you can't do it alone. You need Jesus absolutely. Apart from me, you can do nothing. You must abide in him. But just because he does the work doesn't mean you do no work. See, part of our problem is in Christianity, we've, we've, we've got this bondage to either or thinking. We've got either or thinking. And so we've got, always got two camps We've got one camp that over-spiritualizes everything. And this camp just says, it's all up to God. And it sounds so good, you can't even hardly refute it because it sounds so spiritual. It's just all up to God. He's just gonna do the work. Well, there's certainly a massive element of truth there and we can do nothing apart from God. 
But it's either or thinking. Then you have another camp, and they're the or, and they're the it's all up to us. Because they read all the verses. One set looks at one group of passages in the Bible. One set looks at the other ones, and they say, it's all up to us, and they're busy doing works on earth. And the fact of the matter is, it isn't either or. The Bible says both. It's both and. Both God does the work, and I also have to work. Let me, let me read you something. I, I underlined it here. It's really good, okay? I'm going to read it twice. When it comes to character, God has to work in me, and I have to work at it. Does that make sense? Okay. Let me just read that to you again. When it comes to character, God has to work in me. I need that work, but I still have to work at it. Now, some of you are thinking, well, show me that in Scripture. I'm so glad you asked that. <laughs> it should be in the Bible, right? It is. You've set me up, okay? Colossians 1.29. Paul says this, For this I toil. The word toil there comes from the Greek word that means toil, okay? It means, <laughs> again, straining, sweating, working, exhaustion. For this I toil. With what? Look at this. Struggling with all whose energy? His energy. Do you see the both end? It's not either or. It's not Either God does all the work or I do all the work. It's both and. Paul says, I toil with all of his energy working powerfully in me. Let me show you this in another passage. Philippians chapter 2, 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. I wish I would have had time for this in the assurance of salvation point last weekend. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There are millions of evangelicals around the world that want to ignore this verse at all costs. Work it out. Why? For it is God who works in you. So why am I going to work out my salvation? I'm going to work at it because he's working in me. Out of gratitude for the work he's in me. I don't sit back and do less. I do more. So God works in you. He saves you. He puts a seed of a desire to do good in you. You act on that desire and you work harder with zeal to pursue righteousness, godliness, steadfastness, integrity, and all the rest. God is working in you, so you must work. The Christian life is not a matter of us sitting there and waiting for Jesus to pop something out of us. We must engage, okay? Now, again, I want to just... Uh, illustrate this. I have a little less time. We had a lot of baptisms in this service, but I want to illustrate this so you see that this is both and. 100% we have to depend on Jesus, and 100% we have to engage. It's not 50-50. It's I'm not preaching, you know, 50% depend on Jesus, 50% self-effort. No. It's 100% depend on Jesus, and part of that dependence means training myself for godliness. It's 100% both. It's both and. The problem is when we're preaching and this church just keeps getting bigger and bigger and God's just doing this amazing work is when I preach, we're in such bondage to either or. The either camp hears me saying one thing and the or camp hears me saying the other thing. And I get both emails, okay, during the week. So let me just illustrate for you. I want to show you that I'm both and. Fully depend on Jesus. Fully work out your salvation in fear and trembling. So let me show you how this works. Let's compare and contrast three men who are trying to get over pornography, okay? Pornography is just an easy one to illustrate. And let me show you what I mean by the both end. Guy number one realizes he needs to get out of pornography, okay? But he has no sense of dependency on Jesus. All he has is brute determination and self-effort. He says to himself, I'm going to get off pornography. And he gets rid of his TV, he gets rid of his internet, and by brute determination, he's gone three weeks. And he hasn't, and he hasn't given in to the temptation, 
Now, he thinks he's doing well, but the thing he misses is, if you don't depend on Jesus, the thing is, temptation avoidance doesn't change your heart. And what you really need is heart transformation. And if you don't change your heart, temptation will always find a way to get you eventually. And he wanders into 7-Eleven one day, and all of our stores these days are just absolutely filled with sexual, uh, lustful magazines. It's terrible. But anyway, he goes into 7-Eleven one day, and so what? He got rid of his computer and his TV. Temptation will find a way to get him. And he sees one of these lustful magazines. He's back into his lustful addiction. He's there for a week or two. He feels depressed. Finally, he decides, i got to get out of it again. But again, he's not depending on Jesus, so he's not getting heart change. And he just ends up in a cycle like this. He's depressed. I have seen many guy number ones. He never gets freedom. He constantly feels guilty. And eventually, he probably just gives up. Guy number two is a lot different. Same results, though. Guy number two looks at guy number one, and he sees the truth of the fact that self-effort gets you nowhere. So he looks at guy number one, and he says, well, I'm not going to bother with that. I'm just going to let Jesus do this in me. So he knows that he needs Jesus. So he prays. He has a prayer life. But he doesn't bother to do anything else. He doesn't bother to pursue. He thinks Jesus is just going to deliver him magically without him doing anything. So he keeps his TV. He keeps his internet. Doesn't bother to avoid temptation. Doesn't bother getting like a support group or nothing like that or going on an encounter. He just, I'm just going to rest in Jesus to do this. Well, he goes a week or so. One day he's on the internet. He's Googling something. He gets a a weird pop-up. Boom, he's dragged back into it. Now, he's back into it. He responds to it differently than guy number one. He doesn't get depressed because he knows the lingo. He says, I'm just abiding in Jesus. I'm just waiting for Jesus to take this from me. And so he reminds himself of his identity in Christ. I am not a luster. I'm, I'm I'm a child of God. I'm not a luster. So he doesn't get depressed. What he does, and I've seen this happen many times, he gets into a a comfortable cycle of sin and repentance. And he just gets into a comfortable cycle with this. And I've actually heard this comment a few times in this church. This is an abominable comment where people will say, you ask them about a serious sin issue in their life, and they'll just say, well, Jesus just hasn't taken that away from me yet. What? So now it's Jesus' fault that you have this sin problem in your life. You're sitting doing nothing, waiting for him to do something. My friends, that is not abide in me. Guy number two also does not get delivered. And again, I've seen many guys in all three of these categories. Let me tell you about guy number three. I had a guy number three again in my office just a couple weeks ago. More than 10 years in pornography, more than six months free now. Let me tell you what guy number three does. Guy number three knows he desperately needs Jesus. He needs heart change. And he prays and he confesses and he has a walk with God, a devotional walk. He's in the word. He's doing everything he possibly can. But he's not just waiting for Jesus. He's taking responsibility. He's repenting. He takes his TV and hucks it out the window. He takes his computer, hucks it out the window. I've even talked to a couple of guys. They got rid of their cell phones. Some of you are going, how can you live? (laughs) Does your heart stop beating? Can you still breathe? (laughs) But these guys just get radical. Are they depending on Jesus? Yes. Do they need Jesus? 100%. Without his help changing their hearts, they'll never get over the temptation. But let me tell you, when they engage and pursue, something happens when you don't just sit. When you get up and pursue godliness and pursue purity, that doesn't mean you're not relying on Jesus. That opens you up to really rely. That's what it means to rely. To depend on him and move into action and say, now, Lord, as I move into action, work through me, deliver me. So it's this both and. It's Jesus, and it's us. And there's just something about that pursuit that opens us up to Jesus' life. Guy number three still can't take any credit. Because in the end, it's still all God. And you often find with these guy number threes, totally humbled. They know they're just so thankful for what Jesus has done in their life. And yet they played a part. 
You know, so much of this is caused by a fundamental misunderstanding of what it means for the spirit to be in control of your life. Again, bondage to either-or thinking. We have this either-or thinking that if the spirit is in control of your life, then you are not. So either you are in control or the spirit is in control. My friends, that life isn't that simple. The Holy Spirit doesn't want puppets. And what we think is if a person's filled with the Holy Spirit, they're not in control, therefore good behavior is just going to pop out of them. They don't need to work at it, practice it, nothing like that. And that's just wrong. Let me show you the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. This is the fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, to 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. When the Holy Spirit is in control of your life, it's not that you aren't in control. You're more in control of your life than you ever were before. Because before the Holy Spirit came into control of your life, Paul said, you were a slave to sin. You had no choice but to sin. You sinned and you sinned and you sinned and you sinned. You couldn't stop it. When the Holy Spirit is in control of your life, he puts you back into control because he wants partners, not puppets. And so the fruit of the Spirit is self-control. Now, if the Holy Spirit wanted to do everything in your life automatically, if he just wanted to produce godly character in your life without you having to do anything, then why would one of his fruits be self-control? Because the only purpose of self-control is what? To help you do things you don't want to do and to keep you from doing things you want to do. I mean, anybody who's ever wanted to get fit, if you want to go from not being fit to being fit, you need a massive dose of self-control, don't you? And the reason you need a massive dose of self-control is because being fit doesn't just happen to you. You have to go through a lengthy process in order to get fit. You have to go through a lengthy process of exercise and eating right. And in order to get through that process, to go from not being fit to being fit, you need self-control because there's many days when you need to exercise but you don't want to. And self-control is the thing that helps you do it. And there's many days when you want to eat stuff you shouldn't. And self-control is the thing that helps you to say no. And it's the same with the process of godly character in your life. The reason the Holy Spirit gives you self-control is because he's not working you on strings like a puppet. And he wants you to sometimes say no to things that you want to do. And he wants you to have the strength to do things that you often don't want to do and get through the process of going from not having godly character to having godly character. Let's talk about three keys to character growth. So that first one, prepare yourself for hard work and persistence. Number two, let's get a little more practical now. Learn character in suffering. Let me read you a mind-blowing passage, right? Hebrews chapter 5, hang on to your seats, okay? I mean, and I mean it, watch this. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, learned obedience through what he suffered. Nobody fell off their chairs, okay? You guys are dulled. You must have had too big of a breakfast or something, or you slept in too late. I don't know, okay? But um, Jesus Christ learned obedience. I, I mean, I read that. This is one of those passages. I read that. I picked myself up off the floor. I slapped my face a couple times. I read it again. I said, Jesus learned obedience. Wasn't Jesus perfect? I mean, why on earth would the Son of God have to learn obedience? Well, I mean, the first thing we acknowledge, obviously, right away, Jesus was 100% perfect. He was sinless. He didn't learn obedience because he was disobedient. 
But this is an unbelievable passage. Jesus, in his 100% humanity, had to learn obedience. What's it talking about here? Character. Learning obedience here is not talking about head knowledge. That would be learning about obedience. Anyway, you don't learn head knowledge through suffering. Jesus had to learn. The Son of God had to learn obedience. What's it talking about there? Learning to submit to the Father's will at all costs, even unto death. Learning to take insults and false accusations and not respond, but trust yourself to God. Learning to be faithful. Learning to persevere in intense pain. This is all what's tied up. I mean, anybody who's ever read the crucifixion story, I read that story, and I'm just blown away by the way Jesus just stood there when people lied about him and accused him and all this sort of stuff. I go, that's amazing. That's all wrapped up into this whole phrase of learning obedience. Now, here's the thing. Jesus Christ, Son of God, more full of the Holy Spirit than any person who's ever lived or ever will be, and yet he still had to learn obedience. It wasn't automatic. That is just... Unbelievable. If Jesus had to learn obedience, how much more are you and I going to have to learn obedience? It's not going to be automatic if it wasn't for him. And let me just say something else here. There's a whole bunch of preachers out there right now that are preaching this bogus message that God only ever wants to bless you, bless you, bless you, bless you. That is so bogus. If God was willing to put his only son through suffering so that he could develop character in him. Yes, one reason why God put his son through this was to save us. But this passage says there's another reason, because Jesus was learning obedience. And it says in the following verses that it has to do with him ruling after, to make him worthy. If God was willing to put his own son, his only son, through suffering in order to teach him obedience, do you think God is going to let us go through suffering to teach us obedience? I think so. I think so. If Jesus needed it, so will we. In fact, God wouldn't be a good God if he didn't. That's how important your character is. Because your character, as we talked about last week, impacts your eternity. If God didn't let you go through suffering in order to grow in your character, he wouldn't be a good God because he'd be shortchanging you for the billions and billions of years that go on and on forever and ever after Jesus comes back. So because of his love, he puts us through suffering. Now this is this is uh, a depressing point for some. First of all, none of us like suffering. If you do, it wouldn't, if, I mean, if you did, it wouldn't be suffering, right? Okay, none of us like suffering. Number two reason why I've often found points like this to be depressing is because what can you do about it? I mean, you're either in suffering. Some of you right now, you're here right now this morning. You are in an intense major crisis right now. This verse immediately ministers to you. You go, oh. Yeah, Jesus learned obedience and suffering. I'm learning perseverance. I'm learning trust. I'm learning all that stuff. But maybe there's many of you here sitting here today. You're not in a major crisis right now, and you may do what I've often done in messages where a point like this comes up, and I go, well, what can I do about it? Well, here's the awesome thing about the Bible. The Bible does not put a line. Like, here's the continuum of suffering from almost no suffering to really, really intense suffering where some of you guys are at right now. The Bible doesn't put a line here and say, anything more than this, you learn from it. Anything less, you can't. It doesn't put that there. In fact, the Bible clearly tells us that you can learn from any and all suffering. Let me show you James chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers. When? When you meet trials of what kind? Various kinds. Not just the really big, really, really ugly ones, but every kind. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you face trials of various kinds. All kinds, big and small. Ugly and uglier. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. That's character. 
And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. Again, talking about character, lacking in nothing. Now, I don't want to rabbit trail here because that's a whole other message that I'll get to on steadfastness. But James says, count it all joy when you face trials of various kinds. We can learn from every kind of suffering, big and small. We don't have to wait for those one or two or three, you know, uh, you know, major crises that come into a lifetime and kind of define your life. You can be learning every day before then. Let me show you four smaller kinds of trials. These are regular ones. Every one of us faces these. Most of us face these every single day. Let me show you four smaller trials. These are not the major crises of your life. These are the smaller ones from the various kinds. And each of these four, absolutely essential for your character. You don't have these, you're not going to be able to grow in character. So let me show you the four God sends in your life. First one, Difficult people. Difficult people. Now, some of you are sitting beside difficult people, okay? You may be married to difficult people, okay? And if you are, count it all joy. You're so lucky. <laughs> you're blessed. You're really blessed, James says, because you get, you're in the weight room every day building character. See, difficult people are necessary. This is what we tend to do with difficult people. We want to avoid them. We want to hate them. We want to grumble and complain about them. We want to resist them. James says, count it all joy. Why? Because if you don't get the various kinds of trials, you won't have steadfastness in your character. And if you don't have steadfastness in your character, you won't be perfect and complete, and you will be lacking something in eternity. So the difficult people in your life are in your life because God loves you. Now here's the problem. Just because you have difficult people in your life doesn't automatically mean you have good character. If that was true, we would all have massive amounts of godly character, okay? The problem is, like I said, we are short-circuiting the process of God developing good character in us. And we're short-circuiting it by doing the easy thing. We do the easy thing instead of the hard thing. Every time we meet with difficult people, instead of responding with love and with kindness, we return harshness for harshness, evil for evil. We avoid instead of engaging. We grumble and complain. We tell all of our friends, I can't stand my boss. I can't stand this coworker. I can't, whatever. Every time you take the easy way out, you complain, you give in to your carnal nature, you return evil for evil. Every time you do that, you fail to improve your character. In fact, you poison it. Count it all joy, brothers. I want to open your eyes to see that the trials in your life are for your good. But here's the thing. Every time you get into an interaction, see, I said before that we have over-spiritualized this thing of character. For example, you read in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, it says, love your enemies. Famous verse in the Bible. Almost none of us ever lives up to that. And the reason we don't is because we over-spiritualize. We think, well, God, I hope that I can love my enemies someday and leave it at that. What we don't realize is that if you want to love your enemies, it's not just going to happen to you. You have to practice. The way you get from not loving your enemies to loving your enemies is through practice, 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 and more practice. That's why Paul said, train yourself for godliness. It doesn't just happen to you. It's not some spiritual event. and blah, blah. It comes through difficult people. And every time you have an interaction with difficult people, you have a chance to practice again. You have, a you have a chance to practice not defending yourself. To return a kind word for a harsh one. To trust yourself to God and his judgment. To not complain. To shut your mouth. To bless instead of curse. 
And it's only as you turn. See, character is formed in the nitty-gritty, the actual events. And it's only as you choose over and over and over and over and over and over again to do the right thing in these practice places that over time you develop godly character and you become the type of person who loves your enemies. Paul says, train yourself for godliness. It's not automatic. Now let me give you some encouragement. With practice, it gets easier. Just like with anything. I mean, nobody, none of you guys without practice could just come and beat me in a game of ping pong, okay? It, uh, you know, it's not some mystical event. Someone lays hands on you and you beat Chris in ping pong. No, okay? You're going to have to practice. Same with golf, you know? You don't just pick up a club and you're at the British Open winning money. Practice, practice, practice. It's the same with your character. Now, here's the thing. The more you practice, the easier it becomes. I mean, guys that lift weights, first time in the weight room, they're pushing up a certain weight. Very, very difficult. They can barely do it. That's the max. They're hurting. But over time, they keep straining themselves. They're not sitting around in the weight room waiting for muscles to happen. They're straining themselves. They're ripping their muscles. They're sore. They're trying heavier and heavier weights. Over time, the body responds by adding muscle to their body. Over time, they go back to that original weight. It's easy for them. It's the same with your character. Every time you get a chance to practice, push that weight up. It's going to take some strain. It's going to take some work. It's going to take some blood, sweat, and tears. Over time, it gets better. That's how the Holy Spirit works. That's how he helps us. And the whole way, obviously, we depend on him because apart from him, we can do nothing. Let me, can I share something? I mean, yeah, we got time. Can I share something cool with you? How many, just raise your hand if you'd like me to share something cool with you. Okay. Those of you who didn't want, just put your hands in your ears and I'll tell you when we're done. (laughs) Something very cool. Because this is amazing. This is really cool. Here's the thing. The way God has created your body, he has made your brain to, to tie together with your character. Did you know that? As I was doing research for this message, I was reading a book by, by, uh, by a guy by the name of N.T. Wright. We have a number of his books in the library. Brilliant, godly, respected uh, theologian. Really, really awesome guy. In one of his books, he cited a scientific study they've done. Neurologists did a study on the human brain. And this is what they found. They found that the brain changes itself, physically changes itself to mold with your behavior. Here's what they did. They would hook up a bunch of stuff to, you know, guy no, subject number A, and they would subject subject number A to harsh words. And then they would watch how subject A responds to the harsh words, and then they would, they would look at what happens in his brain. And then they would repeat this experiment over and over and over and over again over time and see what happens in subject A as he repeats a certain behavior over and over again. Here's what they found. If subject A responds to a harsh word with anger, s- defensiveness, and lashing out, lashing back, If he does this behavior over and over and over and over again, the brain will physically change itself to mold with that behavior. It will build new neural pathways and shortcuts that make anger and self-defense much easier every time that you hear a harsh word. In other words, your brain puts itself into a physical rut when you get into a character rut. Now let's just face up to the facts right now. Most of us have some very serious ruts in our brains right now, do we not? And these ruts, once you're, now, when I, when I first read this, I was blown away. First of all, I, felt, I just felt awe at our creator God and the way he has made the human body. Amazing. And second, I felt sobered because suddenly you realize a character isn't this thing way out there. Every choice I make is making it easier for me to choose that again in the future. That is a sobering thought. 
that the physical and the spiritual are actually in some ways tied together the way God has made us. Now, the thing is that's encouraging to me is when you start to get this paradigm, you understand, you stop having false hope. You stop thinking that character is just going to magically happen to me. You realize that in order to develop godly character, you're going to have to build new ruts. And the only way you can build new ruts is to do the same thing that you got the old ruts by. You got the old ruts by doing something over and over and over again. You want to get new ruts? You've got to do the good things over and over and over and over again. Practice, practice, practice. Until your brain and your character form new ruts. Now, keep in mind this brain study. Let me just, this, that brain study brings to life a passage, a character passage. Romans 12, verse 2. Let's read this. Watch how this verse comes alive now. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. Talking about behavior and character. Be transformed by how? The renewing of your mind. You want to have transformed character, you're going to have to get the mind transformed. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. I'm actually jumping ahead of myself. We're going to jump to point three for just a moment, and then I'll finish it off. You want to change your character, you've got to renew your mind. Well, that just opens up a whole another can of worms here. Let me tell you, if you want to renew your mind, that means you've got to feed your mind with something good. You've got to, how are you going to build those good ruts? How are you going to get those new thought processes in there to guide you? as you undo these old ways of living. And I tell you, there's only one way. There is one absolutely non-negotiable, essential habit that you must have if any of the rest of this series is going to make a difference in your life. This next one's non-negotiable. You don't engage in this habit, the rest of this series will kind of fall and hit you and maybe do something fuzzy in your life, but it won't go deep. And the one non-negotiable habit is this regular scripture meditation and prayer. Because you need to feed your mind with something. Now, this is the thing I often hear from Christians is they say, well, I tried that and it didn't work. I'll tell you why you didn't like it. You say, I'm bored with it. I just can't stand it. I read it, it's dry and dusty. It doesn't make any sense to me. Let me tell you why it doesn't make any sense to you. Let me tell you why it's so dry and dusty and boring when you need it so bad. Because all your life, all you fed your brain with is TV and internet and texting and all that sort of stuff, and your brain has physically wired it to go with that stuff. So now when you read the Bible, it's like reading something in a different language. You don't even have the connections up here to make that thing make sense. And the only way to undo those ruts is by practice, practice, practice. You spend hours in the media. You've got to spend hours in the Word to undo that damage. And I've seen it happen many times as, well, as people just brute force themselves into the word over time. Over time, they get new ruts in their mind. And by the Holy Spirit's power, something comes over them. And over time, they, it's like learning a new language. It begins to have life in them. But it takes time. And once you get out of those old ruts of all I can stand is movies and this stuff, and I can't stand the Bible, once you undo those ruts and you start to actually like the Bible... Now the Bible can actually begin to build ruts in you, in your character. I want to look at this passage, Deuteronomy chapter 17. And when he, again, the Bible is not just magically going to come alive to you one day. The Bible is a whole nother medium than the medium you're filling your brain with. And in order to switch over, it's going to take a lot of work. But look what will happen to you if you do it. And when he, the king, Moses writing here in advance about how the king should behave when he becomes king sits on the throne of his kingdom. He shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law. First job of a king, write out the Bible. 
approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it how often? A-L-L, just so you know, all, all the days of his life. Let's try it again. How often should he read in the Bible? All the days of his life. All the days of his life. Why? That he may learn to fear the Lord as God. First reason why, when you read in the Bible, it builds a fear of the Lord right in your brain and your character. That he may learn to fear the Lord as God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Here's second rut number two that reading the Bible regularly, daily is going to do for you. That his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. It's going to build a humility rut. And that he may not turn aside from the commandment, obedience and righteousness rut. Either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. If you want to become a person of character, it's going to absolutely require renewing your mind. And one of the core pieces of renewing your mind is regular daily time in God's word. You must, must have it. You must eat it. Let me go back and finish now. Those four common practices, various kinds of trials that God uses to, to train us. First was difficult people. Number two is marriage. Okay. And not just bad marriages, good marriages, all kinds of marriage. I mean, I have a great marriage. Me and LaDawn love each other. She's my best friend. I absolutely adore her. But marriage is the best thing ever for my character. Single people, this is why you get married, okay? <laughs> Build your character. Because every day you have to practice serving, humility, not getting your way. There's all these things, absolutely essential. Marriage is brilliant for that. But you know what too many people in our culture are doing? My marriage doesn't make me happy. It wasn't supposed to. You were a miserable old cur before you got married. Of course you're still that afterwards. You didn't marry the Holy Spirit, okay? They can't change you. I get a phone call the other day from a guy. He goes on and on. Oh, she doesn't love me. Blah, blah, blah. How can I go through this? My life is terrible. Blah, blah, blah. All sorts of fun. I said at the end, you know, why should I stick in it? I should go with this other woman. Blah, blah. I said, what about your character? Awkward silence. Not sexy advice. He hasn't called me back, okay? It's for your character. God wants to develop your character. Marriage is wonderful for that. Difficult people are wonderful for that. Unfair treatment is God's blessing in your life. Consider it all joy. I'm going to do a whole message there. I won't spend any more time there. But unfair treatment is God's gift to you to get you more blessings in the next life because it's going to prepare your character. Count it all joy when you face these various kinds of trials, but respond right in them. Every time you do it, you're pushing up the weight. You're growing the character muscle. And the last one is the, just the daily pressures and responsibilities and deadlines of life. As I was just writing that last point there, I was thinking of, you know, we've got many stay-at-home moms here in this church. And you may be a stay-at-home mom or whatever it is, but whatever it is for your situation, but, you know, you got three or four kids at home, and there's just those days where you're exasperated, and you're exhausted, and you're frustrated, and you're tearing your hair out, and you're just about to tear out someone else's hair. And it's right then, all of us, this is what we tend to do when we're exhausted, when we're exasperated, when we're frustrated. We lash out, we give up, we run away. But we don't realize it's right in that moment when the frustration is the highest. That's your best moment. That is a strategic moment to build character. It's right then. That's the most important times of your life. It's right then if you will, if you will act in patience, if you will respond with a gentle word. It's right then if you will do those things that you're building the most muscle. And you're developing yourself for life in, in Jesus' kingdom. Character will not just happen to you. 
Character is formed in the daily grind of right choices. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus. Again, Jesus, I ask for a fire for holiness and godly behavior in this church. Lord Jesus, steadfastness, integrity, godliness, loving our enemies, responding well to unfair treatment. Jesus, give us a burning desire to act right when under pressure. Give us a vision of what godly character is like. Give us motivation in our spirits to push towards the goal. We rest in you, Jesus. Anything we try can't be done apart from you anyway. Do this work in us as we zealously pursue righteousness. In your name I pray, amen.